Okay, welcome to the show this week, Trill Billy Fam. We have a very special guest on joining us uh, from New York by way of Tennessee. So it's like all the. Uh, <laughs> No, not a fan. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, we have with us Molly McGee, who is an author. Uh, you, you, you said to mention that you. Oh, went, girl, I said. You said to mention <laughs> that you went to Columbia and and teach there, but that's a bad thing. See, I'm so far removed from it. I don't know why that's a bad thing. Uh, well, okay. First of all, for context, you asked me what my bio should be. And I said, I wish we could skip that part, but my publisher would kill me. <laughs> and it's just like, so cringe to be like, I live in New York and teach at Columbia. Ha <laughs> Like, okay. <laughs> that's like, all right. I'm, good I'm for done. you. <laughs> well, that means that's good though. Um, that means that the students at Columbia are very blessed to have you as a teacher. Um, bless you. Yeah, I mean, I know that because you have edited me and you're a good teacher. I've learned a lot from you, Molly. And in fact, I've I've read your oh. entire book. Um, oh, my God. Yes. Jonathan Abernathy, you are kind. It's about to come out in a few weeks. Correct. On October 17th. We're getting increasingly closer. We are. We're getting very close. Ugh, scary. Um, I read I read the entire book. I sped through the entire book, honestly. It's uh really that is like one of the highest compliments that I could get. Yeah, that I could, you could say to me. I uh it's very sad. It's it but it it's, it's also like I think I was reading another essay of yours that you wrote in the Paris Review about uh uh, uh what's that Russian author's name? Oh yeah. Dead souls. Dead souls. Um and it's you know, your piece is about debt and your book is about debt. It's about really Are we seeing a theme. Yeah, I'm seeing. A theme. <laughs> um, I think like debt is a very, in my opinion, like a very rich vein for content, um, but also just for exploring like what it is to be a human. Yeah. I mean, it controls all of our lives and we just pretend it doesn't. <laughs> well, that is an interesting point, right? Because it's, Debt is money, but you're mm -hmm. right. It's not real. It's like abstracted money. There's actually a line in your book. You're talking about your, your main character, Jonathan Abernathy, said he's forced to live in the past, his debt, the present, his hunger, and the future, his housing all at once. This gets at a very interesting thing about debt, which is that like it it expand, it, it both condenses oh and expands time, time itself. It's almost supernatural. It is. It's you're right. It's like as a social technology, it is supernatural, right? It like both removes us from the world and it puts us back in it, sort of transformed in a different way, like you're consigning a part of yourself to something else. Yeah, it's really strange because the thing about debt is we're agreeing that our future self can eat shit. <laughs> but like we have no idea who we will be at that time. Um, and it's usually our younger, dumber self who agrees to it. Uh, yeah. So I don't know about you, but I'm in some debt and I am very, very angry at 17 year old me. I am like, girl, I will, I will kill you with my bare hands. <laughs> like, why did you do this? <laughs> I, I, uh, I have a lot of debt. Um, most of it is medical and student debt. That's real. Yeah. It's like two forms of debt that are like for services rendered 
Yes, a long time ago. It's not a long time ago. Yeah, you can't even get like an asset thing out of it. It's not even an investment. It's not even like debt as an investment. It's also like things that you kind of have to have in the moment. Um, You know, it's like, well, you can get treated medically or you can die of discomfort. (laughs) And it's also (laughs) like, well, (laughs) you can get educated or you um can suffer slowly by wearing your body away moment by moment in a physical labor job your choice good luck bestie (laughs) no you're right and honestly this is really weird i went down a rabbit hole about this um like christian theologians in like shit like the 12th (laughs) and 13th century they were very concerned with the concept of debt because to them they could they could see how it was like stealing time. And for them, yeah. this, was a, this was a sin because it was like it was impossible to sell time or purchase time like that was you're relying by doing so. Um, Have you did you grow up religiously? I did very much. OK, so. I thought I thought you did. When What denomination? Southern Baptist. Oh, girl, same. OK, so <laughs> I was like evangelical. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Yeah. And there is like a really interesting Bible quote. Um, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's a it's in the form of a prayer. And it is, Lord, give me the grace to forgive my debtors. So not, you know, like get me out of debt or um, like help me find grace with myself, but like let me reach the point of patience and understanding where I can forgive the people who took advantage of me at my lowest. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. It is weird how debt is shot through so many different aspects of Christianity, actually. It really is. The whole concept of Jesus, like basically Jesus being sent here to forgive your debts, right? To like absolve you of your debts. Yeah, he was like, by the way, I'm going to die and then you'll never have sin again. (laughs) You're welcome. You know, it, this actually does go very deep because I'm pretty sure that the etymology of the word debt in in a lot of like early European languages is almost synonymous with the word sin. Mm, and that makes in, sense. Yeah. And in Plato, I'm pretty sure that one of the very first like ethical dilemmas he presents is of the promising yeah. law. That like it's a kind of like creditor ideology that like your your most like moral or ethical violation would be to default on your debts. It's so I'm kind of like giggling over here because <laughs> like, as you know, you know, you can escape the evangelical, but the evangelical never escapes you. And so you are picking up on a lot of my pet interests <laughs> that I hope are not um I have left the church it is mm. a you and you know why um but it's like interesting about those concepts those philosophies those like things that you ponder over when you're growing up they really stay with you they like form a foundation you know it's it's interesting that like if capitalism could talk I feel mm-hmm. like it would say what you just said it would say uh you know, you can escape evangelicalism, but evangelicalism can't escape you because like so many because like debt pre, you know, debt uh, is a social technology that is uh, precedes capitalism. Right. Like we've had it. a mm-hmm. long time. I really like the framing of it as a social technology, because I think that allows us to have some distance so that we can think about it as something we created as a tool to live. Yes. Um, 
And sometimes it's hard to separate the idea that like we actually did create this thing. It's not just inherent in being alive. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I was saying a second ago about how in Western ethics, like in philosophy, like Plato, they talk about like the promising lie being like the biggest ethical violation defaulting on your debts. But in a lot of like Islamic jurisprudence and theology, there are instances where you can default on your debts. You can like that is permissible. It's allowed. It's just it's wiped clean. There is actually like something really interesting that was normalized in the Middle Ages where they would have days where all the debt was eradicated and they would start afresh. Um, And it was a way of like building community and a building faith and institution. And I just think it's such a beautiful concept that we have no (laughs) grasp of in the current moment. Not at all. There's no grace built into our monetary systems. It's almost as if the whole thing is about how we should be perfect, which is the most inhuman thing of all. You're right. And to pivot to what we are kind of here to talk about, that is a theme that is very much undergirds a lot of your book. Like there is no, there's no grace. Like, you know, it's like you, you know, just to sort of like put it very crudely and I don't want to like give away spoilers or anything. But yeah, there's kind of a lot. There's kind of like some twists. There are some twists. I was like, oh, shit. Like there are parts where you get to where your perspective just does a huge turn. Yes. Um, So be careful, Terrence. Yeah, I don't I don't want to. Yeah, right. I'm trying to be very careful. I don't want to like give any spoilers. Um, But to put it as sort of sort of like matter of factly as possible. Your main character is someone who has a lot of debt. Yeah. And not only debt that he incurs himself, but debt that is he's saddled with yeah. after the death of his parents. Um, Which is illegal. And yet he still has to deal with it in some way. Yeah, that is interesting. This is something that we have talked about a lot on the show recently, which is that there are a lot of forms of debt that you can shed in bankruptcy and that don't get passed on. Mm-hmm. There is one form of debt that is legal to be passed on, and that's student debt. Student loans. <laughs> like They're just like, oh, you want to change classes? Fuck you and your entire family. <laughs> <laughs> respectfully, though, respectfully. <laughs> you're right. Like, because you're right. Like, the underlying premise is in getting an education, you are aspiring towards social mobility. But it is, it is like a, it is upfront, literally a gamble. It's going to be like, okay. Well, you're going to gamble with this. You want to try to ex- escape your class, right? But my, my grandparents who are like, um, they're deep Alabama Southerners. And my grandfather's passed away. But when he was alive, they were horrible, horrible, like gamblers. Like would go to the casino, roll up, like gold jewelry, Hawaiian shirts. You know what I'm saying? Like right. what that Southern grandparent archetype. Um, <laughs> yeah, when I went to school, it did feel a lot like that. I was like, I'm playing against the house, baby. Let's go. Yeah. Um, well, you know, and it's just like, you know, I uh, just to sort of like formally ask, maybe that's a good segue into it. It's like, where did this project begin for you? You know what I mean? Like wh- what, um, how, um, why did you decide to pick debt 
that's not that's not exactly that's not entirely what the book is about right it's but it's about a lot of no. it's about I, I would say communities and relationships and debt and how kind of like the whole system is is built so that we the only answer is individuality which is just such a, a lonely answer and is a setup for failure but where did the inspiration come from is that kind of what you're asking yeah 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 where um yeah uh i went so my mom passed away we kind of referenced that earlier um and i was working at a company as an editor and i was working on a bunch of different um book projects and my mom died really unexpectedly through sort of like tragic um and i will say very southern circumstances that's all I'll say about it I won't get into it too deep but very very southern and my workplace at the time gave me like three days off like to handle her debt or her death but she had a lot of debt she didn't have a will and my mom was a little bit of a light hoarder Um, You know, I don't know if she would like the term hoarder, but she was a collector of items and there was a lot to sort through when she passed away. She left a lot of things in flux and three days was not enough time for me to handle it all. Um, But I was given a sort of maxim that I needed to come back to work or lose my job. And... I did go back to work and in going back to work, I missed my mom's funeral. And to me, this is like a huge point of shame. Like this is one of the worst decisions I think I made in my life. Um, And I started when I went back to work having intense anxiety dreams and my anxiety dreams, I dream very vividly. Um, My anxiety dreams turned out to be this novel. Yeah, And so I don't know why I don't ever dream about myself. Like I'm never a first person in my dreams, but it's always me dreaming about someone else. I think maybe like I really didn't have any empathy for myself during that time. And I think writing and working on, I became obsessed with this project. Like when I wasn't at work and when I wasn't dealing with my mom's death, I mean, it was COVID 2020. Yeah. Like, all I did was just like obsess over this book. Um, and it was really sort of a way to escape myself at that time. I was very, very disappointed with myself. And I was looking at a lot of my life decisions and I was looking at how much debt I accrued to like help my family. I really wanted to like help my mom. Um, and then for her to die before I could ever put all that gambling to use was almost like too much for me because it, I, it was really what I had gambled was my time with her. Yeah. Um, and that just felt like really hard to hold. Yeah. It seems like there's several not to th- go hashtag uh, deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what a novel is. It's uh, yeah, not- it is. It's like, <laughs> you know, and, and this, like, I think the, there's a lot of different like critiques being made here. One of which is like debt and how it, you know, like we were talking a minute ago, sort of warps time around you and warps space yeah. around you. Um, and changes everything retrospectively. Yeah. It's like, it's really, it is a lens with which your perception of the world is shifted. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, 
I think that like through that, you're also trying to say something about the nature of like work in the 20th yeah. century. It's like, I don't, again, I don't want to like give too much of it away, but I think that like a, a large, a large part of the book is about how in, in some ways, like blue collar workers are almost enlisted in a way to sort of maintain or or expurge the sort of neuroses and anxieties of white collar workers they're yes. being exploited in different ways um emotionally physically yeah. um yeah definitely i think there's some like class examination going on about who gets to live life and who gets to maintain life and they're very different experiences Totally. And it's like it it sort of paints the portrait of like an ecosystem um, that is like sort of held in place in some ways. It's very tenuous, though, um, because all the mm. people in this ecosystem are people and they all have their own hopes and dreams. Yeah. And they're individuals. Yeah. Like they're just because, you know, and you know, it, it's something else that I tried to examine is they're not just individuals, they're emotional individuals. And Terrence, I don't know about you, but growing up in the South, the emotions were either when expressed, either bigger than life or they didn't exist. And (laughs) and so I really wanted to explore like the fact that our, you know, we okay. I must say something a little cringy Um, and it's going to give away the fact that I grew up evangelical, but it's like our spiritual health is our emotional health and you know a lot of us leave the church and we write off our spiritual life but like that is our emotional life and our emotional life cannot be separated from our day-to-day existence it is so tied to our health our communities our interactions with other people and when we are emotionally dry or run dry or um you know given no time to experience and in our life it isn't good for anybody it's gross it's just really gross how being how money seems to determine your personhood like what you are allowed to want and not want absolutely i mean that is a theme that you return to a lot in this too like connecting your self-worth to your career or to your to your job and yeah deadly that can be in many ways yeah it can be you know because it's just artificial it's not real you know what's real is your love for other people and whether you support a community or work hard to lift someone up and i think one of the reasons we're all so obsessed with working is because we're obsessed with respect and we feel like we're not respected. And so we think that if we just work hard enough or get enough accolades, it will force people to respect us. And what's sad about that is it does force a lot of people to respect you. There's something that is at work in your book that's very fascinating. It's almost a kind of like dialectical exploration of dreaming because like you've got a passage and I marked it. It's like one of my favorite things. You said the thing about dreams and coincidentally, this applies to work as well, is that once the dream ends, you can no longer c- recollect what happened. Yeah. You feel that something has happened. Um, but like you, you, what you're, you know, you're equating like work and dreaming here, which I think is a fascinating move because 
traditionally we like we generally see dreaming as a way out of work it's like Mm. an escape from work an escape from our lives but like what you're saying here is that like at at this kind of like point of degraded like late capitalism like they found a way to conflate the two yes like they're both they're both they're they're it's all fleeting now that like even in your dreams you can't escape from like the time being stolen from you no um no it's your time is being stolen from you to make other people wealthier. And it's when you go to bed and you feel like incredibly anxious and you can't sleep and you stay up all night worrying about your job the next day, what's actually happening is you're worrying about your stability. You know, you're worrying about your life. And what that's telling me is that, the dream as it's being sold to us is no longer about success, but rather about stability. And I think one of the reasons we are so obsessed with working is because there is such a cruel scarcity mindset around so many of our institutions. When you look back to the early 20th century, the mid 20th century, people had stability you know they had like not everybody but lower middle class people middle class people they could wake up the next day pretty confident they would have a job that is not true for our generation like you can it you know i think of tech workers a lot of them um they were told over and over again that their field is one of the most secure and stable fields. And then we saw all those layoffs affecting like hundreds and hundreds of people that just came out of nowhere. Um, And it just, we're just supposed to just accept it. Like we're as a society, we're just supposed to accept that this like small group of people are controlling all of our lives why you know right. <laughs> it's, it's just i it's not even economic either specifically no. it's like every aspect of it like it's like every single aspect of our lives yeah. yes <laughs> well and it's it's interesting that like so again i sort of like take your book to in many ways be a parable about kind of like you know like i said a second ago this kind of like degraded sort of like late stage of capitalism where yeah like there's a lot of different things going on with the, your main character, Jonathan Abernathy, but there is also there's a story being told about a family here too, and it's sort of like fragmentation. And a second ago, you mentioned how like in the mid 20th century you had stability, and a lot of stability was on these sort of like family forms that were illusory, right? Like they weren't, they were just as much socially constructed as anything else, but they were constructed and stabilized for a reason to kind of keep this kind of like delicate balance between capitalists and workers at a certain point that kind of just got swept aside. And then we got sort of atomization and precarity. Mm. Well, I think, you know, this is really interesting to me personally, it's like thinking about sort of gender and sexual politics and how they are related to economic politics and how a lot of our decisions are interconnected. Um, We think and talk about them like they're siloed. You know Mm. what I mean? But I would argue that the breakdown of the nuclear family 
is because it was an inefficient capitalist model and that it actually like went against the exploitative like <laughs> properties that yeah. we work in. And so as we see nuclear families break down in America, in the West, what we're actually seeing is like corporations actively pushing that. Now I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. Like yeah. I think that um, looking at the family structure as more fluid will help everyone. Yeah. Um, but they're absolutely linked, yeah. which is why, which is why sometimes the politics around it is so funny to watch. Cause it's like, bro, you can either pay your workers and keep the like mom, dad, and two children, or you can't. And right. guess what? You know, like you can't have both. Like you gotta pay people if you want them to live that lifestyle. Totally. Cause it's expensive. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing about like these arguments about abolition of the family and like the optics of it. So it doesn't matter what you think about it. It's happening regardless. It's like, a yes, Terrence, exactly. Like it literally does not matter what your personal opinions are. It's right. happening. Right. I think a lot of people, when they're talking about politics, they forget, like, it doesn't matter if you want to believe it or not. Like, right. or we, we don't always know the reason why it's happening. But it's happening and a bunch of people are complaining about it. So let's yeah. think about why right. <laughs> instead of like, how do you personally feel? That's what I liked about your book a lot. That there's there at no point is there any kind of introduction of a kind of like politic in, in any way. I'm saying this as a good thing because like it really accurately sort of. For a second, I was like, are you calling me a neoliberal? <laughs> No, I'm <laughs> what I'm saying is that like you're in many ways like you're playing in the sort of narrative you're playing with like what's real and what's artificial mm. like by in reintroducing like dreams and like weaving people in and out of those like in a way that is very interesting because it is in for some people in the story it's their job it's their job to right. dream so but like what I'm saying is that at no point do any does anybody even have really the time to sit back and say, like, well, why is this any of this happening? Like, that's really and that's accurate. That in many ways is how most of us approach these things in life. Yeah, it's like, man, I just got to get through the you, fucking day. Exactly. <laughs> you just got to get through one <laughs> oh day at a time. Oh, my God. Like, I just got to look if I can just go to bed and wake up the next day. And if I can just do it, then I'll figure it out later which is right. what debt is about right and one, <laughs> so in in that sense i think that this is like a kind of parable in the way that like dead souls was a kind of like parable for like, i love that book yeah, yeah. The, like, the late surf you know russian serfdom and everything like yeah. you're sort of just laying out this like you know and as you point out in the book like dead souls was billed as surrealism but like when you are actually that close to it you realize it's not that surreal it's not that surreal it's the it's same thing with your book incredibly it's like mm, i don't know this kind of seems like it could happen you know so uh i don't know i love that vein of american fiction um like ray bradbury fahrenheit 51 mm. Right. Like that's just such an amazing text. Uh, there are a lot I teach at Columbia. So this is the thing is I'm up at Columbia and I'm the designated 
creative writing professor who teaches the weird shit the mm-hmm. stuff that like the other teachers are like I don't want to touch that so <laughs> <laughs> I'm teaching right now a class on apocalypses and dystopias and it's so interesting to think about um you know how much of our fear like as a society how much of our fear is just a fear of change and it's because change happens to us without our permission and we have to figure it out in retrospect and a lot of times we don't realize change has happened until we are already in our our new like I'll use a Taylor Swift word era you know (laughs) like we don't always get a forewarning when we're moving into our next era so (laughs) yeah one debt actually sort of in many ways tries to foreclose upon change. This is again, this is the yes, kind of dialectical yeah. nature of it. It's in many ways it tries to foreclose change and make sure that it doesn't happen. But in doing so, it quite often forces change. Absolutely. Well, because it's unsustainable. When we think of our future, we have actually no real conception of it. We only have best guesses. Yeah. Um, but it's completely unpredictable. Our lives are so weird and we just like pretend they're not, you know, and that they follow these rules and that if we just do this, then this, then X thing will work out. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day and he was talking about how, like, he feels a lot of pressure in his relationship to get it right because he doesn't want to turn into his father. And I think that is a lot of people's fears. And we think, you know, if we could just follow the rules or if we can just do things in the prescribed way, we can avoid or outsmart tragedy, but we really can't. It just happens. It's, an, you know, it is chaotic. It's unpredictable. Um, it's really, really sad. And that notion is so hard to hold on to because for me, at least, that idea that anything could happen tomorrow gives me a lot of panic and a lot of depression. And so trying to grapple with how much of our lives is lived in a way where we actually don't know what's going on, like is, is huge. We only sort of find understanding retrospectively, I think when we have time to put the pieces together. And that very much comes across in the book and especially in the way that it ends. Terrence, I feel like what you have, you and I have in common is that we both love Thomas Pynchon and we both like real nerd shit, you know, like we're both like, but what if a book is an examination of the book that the book is (laughs) (laughs) and is in conversation with all the other books to have ever existed? Uh Um, That's how you know we're freaks. (laughs) Yes. Well, and this actually, this is a, that's actually a good point too, because like in some ways, like your book does in have a discourse with other works of art and you know especially i noticed some like dave foster wallace references oh yeah oh my god but that's um that's exact we don't we don't get can you tell he's my biggest influence can you tell that i like i'm not going to show you right now but what i am looking at while i talk to you is my shelf of shame which is just like (laughs) one shelf of like every book he has ever published and all the work ever done on it's like so embarrassing. Like, whatever. I've got, you can't. Everybody should have a shelf of shame. Everybody should have a shelf. That's my shelf. Well, and that's that's the thing. It's like earlier I said there's no 
sort of like mention of like a politic here. And, uh, you know, there is literature, though. And that again, that is how I came to an understanding of the world. It's not like I was like 16 yeah. or 17 and was like reading Marx. It's like, no, I started out reading. I started out, you know, reading like fiction. Yeah, reading fiction. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, let's just say I didn't have a lot of patience growing up for preaching. And I feel like literature is the opposite of preaching. Um, preaching is, you know, I have an answer. I know what's happening. God is speaking to me. Literature, for the most part, is like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? This is so confusing. Like, why yeah. is being alive suck? But it's so beautiful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm. Yeah, I really, I just really like books. You know, yeah. I even like the Bible when other people aren't up in it. You know, when I it's agree. just me chilling, that shit hits. I agree. If you if you consider literature to be like anti preaching in a way or non preaching, yeah. the, the Bible, good literature rather yeah, good, I should say exactly. some literature and you're like okay, and ran. Like. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think that's probably a great sort of place to plug the book um the book is called jonathan abernathy your kind i highly recommend everybody if you're listening to this before october 17th 2023 mm -hmm. you can pre-order it please go do that please go pre-order it um and then after october 17th you could probably find it in your local bookstore or online oh yeah or you know what go get from your library make somebody else pay that money yeah <laughs> have your library order it mm -hmm. they don't you have can it. even download it on libby that's for free yeah the audiobook is really good actually i got to pick like a fancy actor who's in walking the walking dead his <laughs> delivery is so sick it's so funny that's um show. so yeah i'm i i think the audiobook's gonna nice slap. nice yeah. nice well um go find it wherever you can um stay tuned for the second portion of this I'm going to get Tom on, uh, and then like we can maybe we can riff a little bit on this New York Times article if you have time, Molly. If you don't, that's totally fine. Oh, that sounds fun. Okay. All right. We got Tom on board. Uh, welcome to the second portion of our program. Uh, we've got Tom with us, who has just returned from Rough Rider River or something like that. You were uh, um, uh, Rough Trade Dam uh, State Park in uh, <laughs> Litchfield, Kentucky. Rough Trade. So, uh, so yeah. So we've got Molly for the second portion of the show too. Um, I wanted to have you guys both on because I wanted to read this article in the New York Times. Oh I God. feel like I feel like it it's like a good um 
it it like converges with a lot of our interests, obviously, on this show, namely yeah. <laughs> just about how like supremely bizarre the uh, the wealthy and uh, influential are. <laughs> Okay, it's this, like a it's a portrait of how the other half lives. Let's it really say. is. <laughs> Damn, it very much is a portrait of how the other half lives. Um, Thankfully, we don't know much about how they live. You know, <laughs> um, this is in the New York Times. The title is "She Pioneered Internet Fame. He Helped Draft a Constitution. Now They're in Love." <laughs> Who? Who would have guessed that the former New York media obsession Julia Allison and the law school scholar Noah Feldman would make a great couple? So I had to look her up. I didn't know anything about her before this. I didn't um, either. Yeah. But like apparently she um, she used to publish a blog on her college campus called it was a play on sex in the city. It was like sex on the hilltop or something. Okay. Did she go to an Ivy? I think she she went to like one of those Midwestern liberal arts schools, I think. I have to say it doesn't roll off the tongue, but uh, <laughs> I'll give her the benefit of the doubt here. Let's 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 hear more. She um okay, no, she went to Georgetown. Um, which Georgetown, it's not an Ivy, right? But it is close enough. Close enough. <laughs> You know what, Tom? There'd be people out here who'd be like, absolutely not. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. If <laughs> where, I, where I'm from, if you're educated by the Jesuits, you might as well be an Ivy League or something. <laughs> um, so, yeah, according to her Wikipedia, she began her writing career with a dating column in Georgetown student newspaper called Sex on the Hilltop. Uh, mm. And then she parlayed that into like an influencer sort of job in the late 2000s like the late aughts early 2010s um she was like one of the first people to like make money off of people wanting to know her business yeah yeah that's exactly right she was kind of like a caroline calloway of her day yeah she was like the first caroline calloway <laughs> yeah very very true um and this guy well it'll become apparent what he's into um so i'll just go ahead and start here uh, New York Times. One interview, one afternoon in May 2020, Julia Allison said in a hot spring near Joshua Tree National Park, crying. Mm. A media strategist and tech world socialite who, in her former life as a New York City journalist and media personality, pioneered the sort of internet driven microfame we now call influencing. Miss mm. <laughs> Allison was going through yet another breakup. She wanted to know what was the point of it all. Don't we all? Yeah, this is like where our, <laughs> all great literature starts, right? She was becoming micro-famous, he was micro-cheating, and then they <laughs> parted ways. And that's when Noah Feldman came on the scene. <laughs> this is... Okay, so she says, this was not the plan, 39 and single, what does my life come to? Okay, this next paragraph, I think is like, honestly, it's up there with the grades. This blew me away. Um... Then Miss Allison had an unusual epiphany, even for Joshua Tree. I think that's understating it slightly. She needed to consult the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, Noah Feldman. Um, we've all been there, right? Like post-breakup, you're at Joshua Tree, and you're like, who? There's only one man for the job, <laughs> my broken heart. 
That's the Fra- Felix Fra- That's the Felix Frankfurter. <laughs> what, what was his title again? Felix Frankfurter, professor of law at Harvard Law School. Oh, that's okay. the title. Oh my gosh. I guess that's his title. Yeah. He's the free- I'm the Felix Frankfurter professor. Um. Why do professors always have such long titles? I've wondered that too. Like they always have names, like you know the Maynard John Keynes professor of macroeconomics and stuff you know what maybe I mean? they think it makes them sound more important i was just the frankfurter professor of political science at moosehead <laughs> state university <laughs> i was just the hot dog professor <laughs> um like like miss allison mr feldman first rose to prominence in lower manhattan in the aughts as a wonder kind constitutional law scholar at nyu in 2003, at 33, he advised the Iraqis in writing their constitution after the U.S. invasion. <laughs> That's like, if you were wondering what constitution they were referencing in the title. <laughs> I just imagine there he's like starts a Google Doc and he reaches out to the uh, sort of uh, inter- interim government of the newly formed uh, Democratic <laughs> Republic of Iraq. And he's like, I'll take a first pass at it, boys, and then I'll send it over to you for edits. <laughs> we'll circle back on it yeah um yeah that i like when i first read the title i was not expecting i, I should have known right because like how many constitutions have been written in the last 30 or 40 years like nation state constitution like not a lot mm, i mean lower manhattan and the aughts i immediately went george bush who you know like, right right <laughs> yeah um also, like Miss Allison, Mr. Feldman had been unlucky in love, a bachelor, since his 2011 divorce. The two had never talked, but a mutual friend had described Mr. Feldman to Miss Allison as the world's most fascinating man. Oh, <laughs> who's the friend, you know? <laughs> I know. I want to know, right? Like, was he the um, was he the Earl Warren professor? Yeah, who, who else was on the Frankfurter court? <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't remember. Right. Brandeis, I think, was on there with Frankfurter, perhaps. Um, through the friend, she had Mr. Feldman's number, which she dialed from the hot spring. Damn, she oh dialed it straight from the hot spring. She had the idea <laughs> and dialed it straight from the hot spring. That's crazy. Um, this next part makes me so, I get such bad secondhand embarrassment. <laughs> like, my face yeah. is about to turn red. No, no, seriously. He picked up and Miss Allison asked him the meaning of life. <laughs> Oh man, that's Can y'all give me a minute. That's, they <laughs> they spoke for ninety minutes. Like that is an incredible scene, right? Like Joshua Tree, Hot Spring. <laughs> I got a question. What it, what is worse? It, is it like that? Like getting faux deep, like early on, like that, or like the sort of LinkedInization of dating, where you just like ask somebody what their five year plan is <laughs> on their first date, and it's like. I think they are the same. They are the same. <laughs> are yeah, the I same. guess they come from the same ooze, don't they? It's basically like they're like, what if we just skipped this whole getting to know each other process? Right. <laughs> what if we just let's get, let's get down to brass tacks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, honestly, though, like kind of props to her. You're right. There is a lot of secondhand embarrassment here, but like if I was him and someone called me from a hot spring and Joshua Trade asked me the meaning of life. To a guy like that, that's the hottest thing you could possibly do. You know? Uh, I mean? Well, yeah. 
like stroking his brain. He was ready. He was ready for that shit. He knew it was going to fall into his lap like at one of these days. When the next sentence is great. Neither of us can remember what Noah said, but I know it was so profound. She says, <laughs> "Sounds like." Ah, uh, shit. Um, it's so much worse with you reading it aloud. <laughs> Oh, well, you know what? I was thinking like reading this is like, how does this make it into the New York Times? Does one of their PR agents like pitch? It's just fascinating, like how that's um, I feel like old timey newspapers like in the late 1800s would write like pieces like this, like around the round the, mm. uh, the banker, Alma Garrett, the bankers dating, you know, uh, yeah, maybe it's oh. like a society's pages. Yeah, trying to bring back the society pages. This is the society pages, right? Um, Now, three and a half years later, after a courtship that has been, while not precisely a secret, at least conspicuously discreet, Miss Allison and Mr. Feldman are engaged. So I guess they were keeping this under wraps, and that's why it's in the paper now. Like, they're coming out with it. So this is basically like a long-form version of a wedding announcement. Yeah, I have a feeling it's like the professors like i'm still serious guys like <laughs> that's true that is true actually in my brain is still very important <laughs> think a pin in that because that will come back up in a minute that is very yes. true yes you're right this is the professor getting out in front of it being like okay. yes. <laughs> that's he's like look i know how this looks but it's never been done like this before <laughs> yeah that is very true okay um, on the surface, it was an unlikely match. Miss Allison, 42, is a 10-time Burning Man attendee who had lived in California for a decade. Um, her friends included mm. startup chief executives and psychedelic psychotherapists. She considers Bali her spiritual home. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, my God. When you... I, I'm going to try not to be too mean because I'm on press tour. <laughs> So, not saying I'm not saying nothing. And yeah, we're gonna get you in trouble, Molly. Yeah, you're gonna get me in trouble. That's good though. You need all press is good price, Molly. That's true. No. That's, <laughs> on the other hand, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, tell that to I... Subway Jared. <laughs> <laughs> um. Miss Allison described a period of her dating history as 10 years of relationships with polyamorous DJs. Miss Allison said she also dated the former Democratic gov- Congressman Harold Ford Jr. when she was a college student at Georgetown. She did date one serious man, is what she's saying. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he Honestly, Harold Ford Jr., is he kind of sexy? He kind of mean, he looks oh. like he might have. Is he related? No, no relation to Gerald Ford, but his name is Harold Ford. <laughs> That's weird. Um, yeah, he's not okay. sexy. He's not. He kind of looks like he might be sexy in certain si- situations. Mm-hmm. In the right light, perhaps. Yeah. Um, right light, right amount of drinking. Yeah. Um, Mr. Feldman, meanwhile, embodies the East Coast establishment. The son of an MIT professor and a Harvard lecturer who graduated first in his class from Harvard, Mr. Feldman, 53, Speaks five languages, has written nine books, and is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, Mr. Feldman has also been a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, his 
also eight there's a problematic age gap here folks he's uh 53 she's 41 <laughs> noah feldman gave a talk in january 2012 called uh uh the future of Islam, kind of a heavy topic, you know, <laughs> by a guy who wrote the Iraqi state constitution after toppling uh, its government. Yeah. Mm, his ex-wife is also at Harvard law. I just Googled her. Yes. She is a professor at Harvard law and is a public intellectual. And she is 50. So he's, she's closer to his age. Mm, he should have stayed with her. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay, this next sentence is what you're referring to, Molly. Uh, this is the, this is the, uh, this is the kind of kicker here. He said, "People I dated seriously subsequently were people of substance." Mr. Feldman said in a recent interview in his office, distinguished in their professions. Miss Allison, sitting arm in arm with Mr. Feldman, smiled. Serious people, she said in a stage whisper. Um, <laughs> that's that's something. Do you think she knows? Like <laughs> she she clearly knows, but like I think it's the thing, it's like they're both trying to be kind of like haha about it. They're both trying to be sort of like tongue in cheek, but it comes across as extraordinary, like extremely uh condescending still to her. Yeah. I mean, it's not flattering for her. No. It gets worse. It gets worse. Um, but Miss Allison's call came at a time early in COVID restrictions when Mr. Feldman, then nearing 50, teaching remotely and spending much of his time alone at home, was questioning the basics of human connection. I love it when my midlife crisis gets a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> I was not an optimistic I was not at an optimistic point in my romantic life, he said. He remembered wondering, will anyone ever meet any human ever again wait what <laughs> so like, he, like this guy suffers from some sort of solipsistic paranoia it's yeah like, like if, uh, don't yeah he like if he, i die in this plane crash the universe <laughs> will also cease to exist you're it right sounds like his wife got the friends that's exactly <laughs> right like he his wife got all the friends it's like he applied his own specific situation to the entire mm -hmm. nexus <laughs> of human relations at large just Amazing. Can I, can I share something with y'all that I just uh, came across on his Wikipedia page? This might shed some light on our previous query there, but in December 2019, Feldman, alongside some of his colleagues, were called to testify before the House Judiciary Committee regarding the constitutional grounds for the impeachment of one President Donald John Trump. Mr. Feldman is quoted as saying, someday we will no longer be alive. Well, you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> and we will go wherever it is we go, the good place or the other place, and we may meet there in Madison and Hamilton, Feldman suggested. <laughs> they will ask us, Molly, when the President of the United States acted to corrupt the structure of the Republic, what did you do? And our answer to that question must be that we followed the guidance of the framers, and it must be that if the evidence supports that conclusion, the House of Representatives moves to impeach him. Okay, that means all right. This is fascinating. This is fascinating to know. Well, okay, why was he consulting the co Congress on this? Before you go any further, why does he think that Madison and Hamilton will be in hell? <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's start there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but oh but carry God. on. Yeah. Um, uh, I just this, love that he wrote the Iraq Constitution. Yeah, no. This, <laughs> he's he's this, like, when you die, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you'll have to stand before a just God, but also Hamilton Madison. <laughs> well, this makes give sense. account for your acts. <laughs> right, right. Because he was there like fighting jihadists who believe when you die, you get 27 virgins in the afterlife. He believes in the afterlife, you get Madison and Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And they won't and they all want some answers. You'll get 27 <laughs> framers. Good lord. Um, <laughs> this makes so much this this puts all this in so much more context now that he would be very self-conscious about marrying her. Um I like, think it all boils down to the fact that he's a simp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Um the pair said they spoke every day for three months after that first call, often for hours at a time. Mr. Feldman invited Miss Allison to Maine, where he owns a home. It took some convincing. Miss Allison was ambivalent about a bi-coastal romance and about the East Coast in general. Though she felt their chemistry was obvious, she was committed to California. Miss Allison had moved there after half a decade in the late 2000s, in which she became a recurring character in the New York gossip pages and was profiled by the Times as a kind of neo-Candace Bushnell, a dating columnist who people both loved and loved to hate. Is Candace Bushnell the one who created the sec the the calm that Sex and City is based on? I'm pretty sure it is. Um, an an attention economy savant, Miss Allison was perhaps best known as a foil for Gawker, which obsessively and sneeringly covered her social life. In exchange, she gained a kind of toxic fame, both hyper local and completely global, thanks to the internet, which was a harbinger of the culture to come. She was too early, said Taylor Lorenz, the Washington Post tech columnist and chronicler of social media influence. She predicted it all. Um, Scarred by the experience, Miss Allison had been living mostly out of the spotlight ever since. Earlier in their phone calls, she asked Mr. Feldman not to Google her. It's not a representation of who I even was then, let alone now, she said. But eventually... Somebody says, don't Google me. They absolutely want you to Google me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Like, you would rather just not mention. No, don't. Yeah, no, don't. If you're trying to obscure something, you just don't bring it up, period. Also, also, though, he had to have kind of known who she was because, like, you don't just take a call from a stranger at a hot spring in Joshua Tree if you're the Felix Frankfurter professor of law. Well, Terrence, here's the thing you don't understand. Before he was a Frankfurter, he was a Bemis. In 2007, Feldman joined the Harvard Law School as the Bemis Professor of International <laughs> Law. So he's graduated from Bemis to Frankfurter. Bemis. And that's with great, with great, uh, you know, uh, wealth comes great responsibility. That's true. Um, but eventually she got on a plane at the Portland airport from his car. Mr. Feldman caught sight of Miss Allison for the first time. Oh, my God. I saw Julia dancing alone in a sundress on this tiny little triangle of grass in the middle of the airport. He said it was a beautiful, <laughs> moving image of somebody who was sourcing joy entirely internally. <laughs> <laughs> they spent five days together picking out produce at the farmer's market lying in the grass and as miss allison put it kissing on noah's boat i was completely magnetized by this man she said Um, oh my god that that visual image is really that's a little too manic pixie dream girl throwback for me (laughs) it's it's pretty rough 
just dancing on the runway. Why was she That's on the runway? That, what would that look like? Was yeah, she just why standing she... there like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how did she do it? I don't know. Um, still, there wasn't a like nobody's watching. Yes, she was dancing. It says this literally in this paragraph. <laughs> still, there wasn't a culture. <laughs> there was an acculturation process, particularly for Mr. Feldman, who is not really the dance like no one is watching type. To begin with, Miss Allison was immersed in a scene centered on Burning Man, about which Mr. Feldman knew nothing. Oh, my God. But this is the thing. A lot more of these constitutional law guys are getting more into Burning Man. Like, wasn't Neil Katyal at Burning yes. Man? Yes. Like, who's out there? <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying what's going to result from the combination of Burning Man with constitutional law. Like one could say Burning Man is the center of American politics. You I you could say that. <laughs> well, before it was though, I knew a guy named uh, only by the name Richardson. He was only known by his last name and he built the rocket that was on the Muppets movie and he used to go every year. And that's the only well, dude that I ever knew that was a Burning Man guy. Yeah. He seems cool. If you have proximity <laughs> to the Muppets, you're good. <laughs> um Many of Julia's friends have jobs I didn't know existed until I met her. (laughs) Mr. Feldman said, one is a fire dancer. She also has a friend named Purple. He only wears purple and his metier is body work. Um, He uses the word. I would like to be purple. Yeah, I need to use the word metier in a sentence somehow. You could, um, Terrence, if you were a hyper polyglot fluent in English, Hebrew, Arabic, and French, of course. Uh, and also, if you were conversational in Korean and had reading fluency in Greek, Latin, German, Italian, Spanish, and Aramaic. <laughs> um, it sounds to me like he's having fun already, but apparently, according to Miss Allison, he's learning how to have fun, but he's a fast learner. Miss um, Allison took Mr. Feldman on several pilgrimages, acid tests, really, to make sure he could loosen up. First, the pair went to the Indonesian island of Bali. Where Miss Allison her lived, spiritual home. It's her spiritual home where she lived for a year, from two thousand seventeen to eighteen, doing what she referred to as a yoga and meditation sabbatical, and which she said she said she paid for with earnings from her investments in cryptocurrency. <laughs> okay, this 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 like really is an uh, this is insane. Mister Feldman was familiar with the island in part through the work of the anthropologist Clifford Geertz who wrote about the social dynamics at play in Balinese cockfighting. Thomas Pynchon could never. You're right. This is like, we are in Pynchon territory officially. <laughs> like constitutional law professors learning about cockfighting in, in Bali. <laughs> hey, well, this is the first Venn diagram. This is the first time I felt like you may maybe me and this guy could kick it now, though. Mm. Only on this one topic, cockfighting. But... Right. Um, he began to feel pleasantly removed from the rigidly intellectual culture of Cambridge, Mass. And maybe as far away as you can go from Boston, he said. Next, in the fall of 2022, came the final exam, Burning Man, the week-long event where tens of thousands of people gathered to camp and revel in the Nevada desert. I really wish his first Burning Man experience would have been... It was one 2023. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he like, has to deal with like shrimp hatching in his mm-hmm. sleeping bag. Um, to say Noah was having trepidation about Burning Man would be a major understatement, Ms. Allison said. He understood it was a requirement. If you're going to be with me, you have to go to Burning Man. 
there. Okay. That's her, like, you can't cross. You have to. What do you think about that? That's my red line. Right. What do you think about that as a red line? It's pretty admirable, right? It's like. These are my non-negotiables. She knows how to set boundaries. Yeah. When they are important. Oh, my God. What would you do? What would you do if you had met somebody that was perfect for you, but they said, hey, there's only one thing you have to do, and that is go to Burning Man annually. This is what we got. The law professor had agreed to emcee some events for Miss Allison's camp, which she described as a, quote, matriarchy. One session featured a woman in a large headdress leading the audience in a mind-body therapy that involved rapidly tapping certain points on the body. As Miss Allison entered the tent, she saw Mr. Feldman in front of the crowd tapping himself and repeating the mantra, I love and accept myself unconditionally. She said it was the best moment of her life. She, um... She said she like, okay, still for all the changes Mr. Feldman made, it was Miss Allison who agreed to pull up stakes. She moved to Cambridge and last month she began a master's program at Harvard Kennedy School. She said she hoped to work on issues that matter to her, environmental justice, gender issues and animal rights. Because of her course load, she missed Burning Man. Famously, the things you go to the Harvard Kennedy School for (laughs) and not to say uh, pacify much of Southeast Asia. (laughs) (laughs) Um. She, she has mi- moved into Mr. Feldman's 5,000-square-foot mansard-roofed home, which she has, with her fiance, fiancé's intermittently enthusiastic participation, redecorated. It was a sad beige house for a sad beige bachelor, she says. A sad beige man. <laughs> <laughs> this is insane. She, her changes include whimsical pink wallpaper with a pattern of monkeys and leopards, Thick velvet drapes, Balinese statuary, antique chandeliers, and a formidably deep blue velvet couch in the living room. I don't know. Like my association with blue velvet is like such bad vibes. Just kind of it does has David Lynch. It's got the Lynchian (laughs) qualities. That's like (laughs) I just kind of I'm kind of like as much as we have been like sort of side eyeing this, it is like kind of worrisome that she like moved across the country and then gave up her favorite thing within a year and then completely like dropped everything to go to his school. Like it's given, it's given controlling. He must be a little controlling. That is the kind of fascinating thing about this article. It's like very clearly, it's very obvious that they will be divorced within. Well, listen, Molly, I don't, I hate to rebuff you what you're saying here, but (laughs) How many hyper polyglots are still around these days? <laughs> Thomas Jefferson is not walking through that door anytime soon. That's true. Like, who uh, doesn't want a man that can read Aramaic, you know? Right. It's a language when you put it that spell. way. She, kn- she knows. <laughs> right. It's He's in high demand. It's basically what you're saying. Well, he was um, single for 11 years. That is pretty wild. How are you a hyper polyglot and you're single? Like, if you're a hyper polyglot, yeah, who are you having these conversational Aramaic talks? Yeah, with? like if you're a hyper polyglot, that opens up so many other dating pools to you because you can talk to so many other people in different languages, yes. not just limited to English. No, like um, that is. I'm gonna be honest. That's a red flag. It's a red flag. You're right. It's giving. It is giving. Controlling. This is not good. We gotta get her out. Yeah, you. You're a hot commodity in at least eleven nations. <laughs> Let her dance in the airport, King. (laughs) I don't I don't think I recommend it for safety issues, but 
Imagine, yeah, you're taking off and your pilot's like, if you look out the left wing, <laughs> you will see our resident uh, free spirit dancing like <laughs> um, <laughs> Now, Miss Allison calls the house the Bohemian Embassy, and she sends guests a mission statement ahead of time. Our home is more than dwelling, the message reads. It is a confluence of diverse minds and spirits, a space of exploration and enlightenment. Miss Allison hopes to turn the house into a place where the free-spirited sensibility of Burning Man can mix with the cerebral culture of Cambridge. I love that. I fucking love that shit. Because, like, it will, over time, like, he knows what he's doing here. He's playing with fire fire he really is degrading the prestige and honor of harvard by associating with burning man i love that that's great <laughs> he doesn't really he's realize. like what if all my friends who studied like deeply for a decade were friends with people named purple that would fix everything <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> read that last line again terrence Miss Allison hopes to turn the house into a place where the free-spirited sensibility of Burning Man can mix with the cerebral culture of Cambridge. You know, uh, she kind of reminds me of this guy my buddy went to an MFA program with named Trip, mm. And he just wrote a lot about his experiences at Bonnaroo. Uh-huh. Like, through the program. Uh-huh. Like, some people are very touched by festival culture. This, like, they like it. You know what I mean? Mm. It like really gets in them in a very visceral way. And I think I think that's what we have with the future Mrs. Feldman on her hands. Well, that's the thing. Like we we've got Harvard law professors per- perhaps taking ayahuasca. And like this is gonna Yeah, that's illegal. It's like with the acid trips and it's in the New York Times. I'm like, uh hello, my friend lost the ability to vote. He was in jail because he is, had like two right. types of acid on him. This is like some rap snitches type shit. Like you dog, you you're you're snitching on yourself. And he's like getting pulled into the office and reprimanded with his new lifestyle. And they're like, What do you think this is, son? Stanford? <laughs> well, you're acting like this is Stanford in the seventies. <laughs> Um, 60s rather okay we're closing in on the end here we've got a quote from cory booker cory booker Booker says noah is a sharp edge that needs to be softened he is a square that needs to be rounded (laughs) the two have been close since they were Rhodes scholars together at the university of oxford this woman is a gift to him a guy who has been walking a narrow pathway toward extraordinary success all his life Cory Booker continued, and she was on the side of the road in this wondrous field filled with wildflowers, and she got him off the path to dance. I was like, I can only imagine how cringe and awful this wedding would be. And I'm just reading this. Imagine having to experience this article in real life. That's what their wedding would be like. I, too, would break the constitutional law to take drugs. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it could be fun, though, maybe. (laughs) On a on a recent humid August evening, the couple hosted a Shabbat dinner to put those hopes into practice. Mr. Feldman, who is working on a book about the nature of contemporary Judaism, grew up more modern Orthodox. Miss Allison said that she planned to join Judaism. Wait, do you, wait, the good place or the bad place? He's Jewish. He is. He is Jewish. He's um, he grew up Orthodox, uh, but. It doesn't say what he is now. Maybe he's reformed. Hmm. 
I love that uh, she plans to join Judaism, though. Like, honestly, like, <laughs> yeah, like it's, uh, yeah, I plan to join the Kiwanis or the but like, Rotary Hell Club, doesn't yeah. exist in the conception of Judaism. Right. So I'm, I'm going back to the Madison Hamilton thing for a second. You're like, right. You're right. What? You're right. That's why they're not in hell, Molly, because they went to heaven. <laughs> but he said the bad place in his speech. Like, he oh, you're right. It. You are right. Like, we will go to the bad place if we don't vote for impeachment. What the fuck Trump. are you talking about? You're right. <laughs> what are you talking about? The, the guest list featured friends of Miss Allison's, among them a professional intimacy coach, an entrepreneur who built a high tech chair for meditation and a professional relationship coach, as well as two friends of Mr. Feldman's, a physicist and a sociologist. After a dinner of plant grilled salmon prepared by Mr. Feldman and several ga- glasses, I don't even know how to say this. We leave, we say. I have no idea what the fuck that is. Hey, Palace, and keep it clean. I got kids watching the show. <laughs> the group retired to the living room. Mr. Feldman wearing a rakishly, oh my God, a rakishly unbuttoned pink Oxford shirt reclined on the sofa where the meditation chair entrepreneur draped her legs across his lap. Honestly, you're right. There's pinching vibes, but there's also some strong DeLillo vibes here. DeLillo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling a little James Salter too. A little sport <laughs> in the pastime. Novels are living. Well, you're right. <laughs> yeah. The rakishly unbuttoned pink Oxford is straight out of James Salter. You're right. Yeah. Um, Miss <laughs> Allison's Burning Man friends place a premium on physical touch and soft surfaces, a phenomenon they refer to as bringing the squish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is fucking real. I, I, uh, um, Miss Allison sat on her heels on the floor in front of them. Her full length pink floral dress gathered around her. Topics of conversation include the potential for MDMA to treat trauma the 19th century German sociologist Max Weber, and the nature of love. Stariel Hope, the intimacy coach, said that at first she had been skeptical about the match. That's okay. We're back to Pynchon. That's a Pynchon name. To Mm -hmm. me, they were so different. (laughs) She said, he is a man who is part of a hierarchical system, and she is a woman who is sinking an unconventional life in balmy climates. Miss Allison laughed. These two worlds could do so much together, she said. The phys- the physicist, reclining in an Oxblood Eames lounge chair, <laughs> offered that the hippies had saved physics to murmurs of assent. As the evening progressed, the- he performed sleight of hand. This summer, Mr. Feldman and Miss Allison went on a four-country trip to Europe to scout wedding locations, but the couple hasn't yet set a date. Miss Allison said that she was simply too busy with school to properly focus on the wedding she envisions. I have to plan an event worthy of waiting until 42 to get married, she said. There you go. That's that's true love. That's what love looks like, guys. I hope you know I hope I, I hope that by reading this we've informed our audience of what love looks like so that they too know what it is when they find it. This needs to be this episode title needs to be like one of those Reddit posts where it's like uh surf bum hippie GF forty two. <laughs> Uh, hyper polyglot law professor BF 53. I am, um, I'm honestly like, look, y'all ain't giving good press to the whole like coastal elites thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? they're not helping themselves here. Not help- I'm like, mm, mm-hmm. bringing this the squish. Is why people hate you. Yeah, <laughs> bringing the squish. 
That's crazy. Bringing the like, squish to love. <laughs> oh man. Well, um, I think that about covers the gang. Um, I, I feel uh, Yeah, I <laughs> I am way more disturbed after reading that than I thought. Like I, when I was reading it alone, I was like, "This is funny and interesting," but having it after reading it, yeah, out loud. <laughs> something about it. Just, yeah, no, I, I feel sort of like disassociated or something. I'm gonna go take a shower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> go uh disinfect. Um so uh so thanks for listening everybody. Um just want to go encourage you all to please go check out Molly's book, Jonathan Abernathy, you are kind. Also Molly, you're on Twitter. How can people I find am. I'm the I'm the dying machine that is what? X. It's right. just my name. Molly McGee. But also I'm on Blue Skies. I was gonna so. say plug blue sky as well i'm not on there whatever yet. i don't know i get it the whole thing depresses me there's nothing quite like having a book coming out right at the death of twitter <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's why we've got podcasts you're all gonna have that's to go why we have podcasts <laughs> uh, yeah um so please go buy molly's book or like i said earlier pre-order it and then after october 17th you can buy it yeah. um or even go to your library request it they might be able to get it a little early oh yeah That'd be that'd be great. Um, okay, check so, out uh, Molly's uh, next book, uh, Terrence Ray. You are a bastard. I'm gonna start writing now. Yeah, for introducing <laughs> me to two of the most deranged individuals <laughs> on the coast. Um, all right. Uh, well, tune in. Maybe we'll have you back next time. East Coast meets West Coast, and you know, combines in a collision of. <laughs> Wishing love. Uh, okay. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please go check us out on Patreon, P A T R E O N dot com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. You can support us over there. We'd very much appreciate your support. And until next time, we'll see you later. <laughs>